Uh, good morning, everyone. You can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, and uh, we finally have come to that section of Scripture that explains to us at length who this guy Melchizedek is and how he relates to Jesus as our high priest. So I'll give you a moment to turn to Hebrews chapter 7, and uh, before I read the text, I want to bring us up to speed on where we've been in the book of Hebrews so far. Um, the writer of Hebrews, he set out with the purpose of proving the superiority of Jesus Christ. He has done that, right, by comparing Jesus to different elements of the Jewish religion. And from the start of this letter, we know that the writer declared Jesus to be the Son of God, God the Son. And he is our creator, he's our sustainer, he's our provider and protector. Jesus is God and he is awesome. Amen? Amen. And we have seen through the letter that Jesus is better. He's better than the prophets. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses and Joshua. On and on, Jesus is simply better. And there was this growing temptation among the Jewish believers there in the first century when this letter was written to either reject or neglect the greatness of Jesus the Messiah and to turn back to something that was lesser. And so we've been warned, right, throughout this letter about leaving behind so great an offer of salvation to leave something great for something lesser. And so here in the middle of this letter, the case is continuing to build for the superiority of Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is the only one in whom we can find salvation. And that is to the Jews first, but also for the Gentiles. And Jesus is better for the Jews in anything that was previously held to in the Old Covenant. And Jesus is better for the Gentiles in anything that we may have held to in our previous worldly lifestyles. And therefore, what we can say is that then all can find that the greatness of Jesus is what we can cling to. And that we would hold fast because Jesus is our hope. He is the anchor for our souls. We know that as that anchor, Jesus is our great high priest who offered himself as a sacrifice. We learned last week that Jesus entered the heavenly sanctuary and he made atonement for our, own, for our sins with his own blood. And as we're going through this letter, that's just really going to pick up as we're going to learn more and more of these legal and ceremonial and sacrificial systems of the Hebrews that's going to be really carried through the next few chapters of this letter. But that's okay, right? We can understand these things because we are people who want to know God's word so that we can know Jesus. We're those who are not going to grow dull in our hearing. We're those who are not going to be sluggish in our love and good works. We're those who are going to keep moving onward and upward in our heavenly calling. Isn't that right? Amen. You know, we're not going to be a church that settles for a milk-based diet. We don't want the cotton candy Christianity. We want the meat of God's word. We want God's word and the depths of it to nourish our souls. And so because we realize as the people of God, and even just as this expression of a local church, we realize that there's only one direction for us to go. 
And it is spiritual maturity in Jesus Christ. We're moving onward. We're moving upward in our calling in Christ. And so because of that, we can handle a meaty section of scripture like Hebrews chapter 7. Can't we? We got it. And I believe that the writer of Hebrews was strategic in how he developed this letter. And I've even been strategic in how I've been preaching through this letter. And this strategy that I'm talking about is where the Holy Spirit who inspires the scriptures, that he empowers us to hear and to live out God's word. But I believe that the Holy Spirit has been strategic in and through his word to make us hungry for the meat of God's word, to create this appetite in us for more. And and he's done that by convicting many of us of our need to grow in spiritual maturity. We can't wade in the shallows anymore. We can't just always drift away from the things of God. We, we, we need to nourish ourselves on these wonderful and deep truths about Jesus Christ that are found in his word, and the Holy Spirit will minister to us in that. So we want to grow, right? We want to grow in our understanding of God. Now, do you remember how in Hebrews chapter 5, this guy Melchizedek was first mentioned And just when the writer could have gone on to explain Melchizedek, as he will do here now in chapter 7, instead he paused. And he said this in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. He said about this, speaking of Melchizedek, he says, we have much to explain and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And then he launched into what was a very strong warning that was followed up by an encouragement in chapter 6. And like I said, I believe that there's a strategy that the Holy Spirit used in that to, to have us as a church be ready for chapter 7. Because let me just say this. I, th- I believe that we are more ready for Hebrews chapter 7 than we were a month ago. Because we have come through this warning of, and encouragement of Hebrews 6. Because, you know, it kind of made us sit up in our seat a little bit made us examine ourselves and see where we're at in our spiritual maturity. And so now this sort of carrot on a stick, as it were, that's been dangled out in front of us for long enough of who was Melchizedek, we're now ready to to devour it more than ever, right? Because Jesus is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and I think we're ready to hear what that means more than we have been before. At least I hope that's the case for you today. Because either you're going to hear God's living word and the things that it has to say about Jesus today, or this is just going to be, you know, dull and boring time for you. So what's it going to be, right? And, And we have the responsibility to make a decision of what, what's it going to be? And so with that, do you guys want to find out who this mysterious high priest Melchizedek is? All right, let's dive in. Hebrews chapter 7, starting at verse 1, we're going to make our way down to verse 10. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, 
having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how this man, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior blesses the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And you're like, what? (laughs) Well, let's pray. Let's pray and ask God to give us his understanding. Lord, we come before you, and we ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive everything that you want to speak from your word. God, we desire to have understanding, and and therefore we need you, Lord. We need your Holy Spirit to reveal to us the wonderful things that are in your word that testify about who Jesus is about the things that he has done for us. And so, Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would just give us your understanding, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so where should we begin in talking about this guy, Melchizedek? Well, let's let's start here in the first words of Hebrews chapter 7, which says, for this Melchizedek. We're going to stop right there. Come on, right? Well, Melchizedek, right, has been mentioned now several times in the book of Hebrews, which is, you know, he, he was mentioned, but without much explanation, except to say that this guy has a priesthood that Jesus is connected to. And so who is this guy and where else do we see him in the Bible? Well, aside from the book of Hebrews, Melchizedek is mentioned in two other places in the Bible. He is first mentioned in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20, which we're going to look at in just a moment. But there's only three verses about him there in Genesis, and he sort of comes in the middle of a story about Abraham winning a battle in order to rescue his nephew Lot. And just as quickly as Melchizedek enters the storyline, he leaves it again. And it's like this strange appearance of a character, you know, in a movie where you're like, wait a minute, who's, who's this character? He kind of shows up and goes away and you're like, wait a minute, who is that? And almost to the point where you would just forget about it and move on. And that would be the case that, that Melchizedek could have just been a long forgotten character in the Bible, like the hundreds or even thousands of names that we see in our Bible that have very little significance to our daily spiritual lives. You ever read a genealogy lately? There's a lot of names in the Bible that you're like, oh, why does this even matter, right? But we've got this guy, Melchizedek, who shows up in Genesis 14, and then only one other time in Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 is a psalm of David, and it's a messianic psalm, meaning that the words which David wrote had 
prophetic foresight that Jesus would fulfill upon his arrival as the Messiah. And Jesus even quoted Psalm 110 to the Pharisees, saying that it was referring to him as Lord. But comparatively, if you just think about that, that's not a lot of scripture concerning this man named Melchizedek. Think about how many more scriptures there are by comparison of the priesthood of Aaron or of the priesthood of Levi, right? The the Levitical priesthood where they served God in the laws and the ceremonies and the sacrifices. You know, that's all through our Bible. But regardless, what we want to do today is check out these two places in our Bibles that mention Melchizedek. So turn over in your Bible to Psalm 110 and let's read that. So in Psalm 110, again, this is a messianic psalm. It speaks about how Jesus is our king and and what he will do. So Psalm 110 starts by saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And then here in verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right, then go back in your Bible to Genesis chapter 14. Turn there. And in Genesis chapter 14, like I said, you have this account of Abraham who was going out because there was this confederacy of kings who were fighting together. You know, in that day, people like, I want what that person has. I I want that king's possessions. And so they just go in and they, you know, fight them and take all their stuff. And this is what happened where the place of Sodom and Gomorrah where Abraham's nephew Lot was living got you know ransacked and all the people and the possessions were taken and so in Genesis chapter 14 verse 14 we read when Abraham heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive he led forth his trained men born in his house 318 of them and went in pursuit as far as Dan You could read this whole chapter yourself, but basically I'll give you the short end of it is that Abraham went out and whooped on these guys, took back all of the possessions, got his nephew Lot, and then it says that they came back in verse 17, returning from the defeat of Shedlamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And then sort of like out of nowhere, we see then Melchizedek arrive on the scene in verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. In my Bible, there's parentheses, and it says he was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, and then this is a blessing that Melchizedek spoke over Abraham, saying, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And then he just kind of goes away. And so turn back in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. And as you're turning there, I'm going to ask you a question. 
Do you think that is a lot of information or a little bit of information about this fellow Melchizedek? Pretty little, right? Just a few verses in the Bible. A couple in Genesis and just one in, in uh, Psalm 110. Now, based upon that, the writer of Hebrews is now going to talk about this guy where he says in chapter 7, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. So what the writer is doing is just drawing the historical facts from the Genesis account, and he wants to highlight three details about Melchizedek. Number one, he wants to show that Melchizedek was both the king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. Second, he wants to show that Melchizedek met Abraham when he was returning from battle, and he blessed Abraham. And then third, he wants to show that Melchizedek received a tenth part of the portion of what Abraham had won in battle. And so let's look at each three of these details about Melchizedek one by one. The first is Melchizedek was both the king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. So Melchizedek meets Abraham before God had ever established a covenant with Abraham. At this time, there were no laws, ceremonies, or sacrifices in the way that they would later come to be in the covenant that God would make with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel has not yet become a kingdom. You know, David's not even in the picture yet. There's no temple that has been built in Jerusalem. But Melchizedek is this guy who seems to be connected to several elements that would later become huge parts of the Jewish people. Melchizedek, for instance, was a king, and, and he happened to be the king of Salem, which most interpreters agree would later become known as Jerusalem. And he was a priest. He was a priest of the Most High God. And this is a name for God that is called El Elyon, the Most High God. And it's a name of God that was used by those who recognized, you know, Yahweh, Abraham's God, as the one true God and the highest of all gods. And not that there are other gods, but because there are those who claim that there's other gods, especially in those times, El Elyon was the name of God that showed him to be far more superior in power and that he was the highest in glory, and that there was no one greater, there's no one like him. God most high. And Melchizedek, this king of Salem, is a priest of God most high. Hold on to that. Second, Melchizedek met Abraham when he returned from a battle, and he blessed Abraham. So, we read in Genesis 14 how Abraham had set out with his 318 trained men, and they just whooped on that confederacy of kings. Abraham returned from slaughtering those kings. You know, he chased them down, killed them, took back all the people and the possessions that were stolen, including his nephew Lot. 
And Abraham returned to the Valley of the Kings. And that's where we read that Melchizedek was there to meet him, waiting with some bread and wine. And perhaps the bread and the wine is a wink, wink to communion. Hold on to that. We are doing communion this morning. And so Melchizedek, this previously unknown king and priest, comes and he blesses Abraham. And this is the blessing that he spoke. In Genesis chapter 14, verse 19 through 20, it says, Blessed be Abram, that's the name of Abraham before God kind of renamed him. Blessed be Abram, the God by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Now, in what we can tell from this short account in Genesis 14, is that Abraham gladly received the blessing that Melchizedek spoke over him. So much so that Abraham gave a gift to Melchizedek. And that brings us to the next point, the third point, which is that Melchizedek received a tenth part of the portion of what Abraham had won in battle. So the first part of verse 2 tells us that. It says, into him... Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. We read that Abraham himself wouldn't take any of the possessions that he had gained in battle, but he gave it all back to the king of Sodom, the the one in whom it was taken from, except for a tenth part of everything. So Abraham gave a tithe. Tithe just means tenth. A tenth portion off the top, he gave it to Melchizedek. And then Abraham's men, who were the allies with him, took portions for themselves. And then Abraham gave it all back to Sodom, and he didn't want to receive anything from him because he wanted his riches to come from God and not from wicked Sodom. And so Abraham didn't take any of the spoil that day, yet he gave a tenth of it to Melchizedek. Now, these are the facts that we have from the story of Melchizedek. But what does it all mean? Well, let's keep going in verses 1 and 2. For this Melchizedek, we're just recapping here, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. And then he says, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. This is where the writer is now going to draw out some of the mystery that is behind this man, Melchizedek. And in doing so, he wants us to first consider the translations of Melchizedek's name and position. So first, he is, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Melech is the name for king. Sadek is the name for righteousness. Melech, Sadek, Melchizedek, king of righteousness. That is the translation of his name. You're like, well, that's cool. And then he is also by translation of his position, king of Salem. And Salem comes from the Hebrew word shalom, meaning peace. And so the translation of his position means 
king of peace. And you're like, oh, that's, that's cool too. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Melchizedek, by translation of his name and his position, means that he is both king of righteousness and king of peace. Hold on to that too. Now I can kind of see how the wheels are starting to turn, right? You can kind of see where this is going, but let's read the next verse, verse 3. It says, he is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. All right, now this is getting meaty. Melchizedek, right, shows up on the scene in Genesis chapter 14. He leaves as quickly as he came, only to be mentioned one other time in a prophetic psalm. Now he's being explained here as someone who we don't know where he came from or where he went. There's no other record of history on this guy other than the fact that we have that he met Abraham, gave him bread and wine, blessed him and received a tithe, and and that he was king of Salem and priest of Most High God. But otherwise, he is without father or mother or genealogy. Now, if you've been reading the Old Testament uh, in the last few months or just in general, then you know how important genealogies are for the Jews. It was the preservation of family lines and histories that would tell us of God's unending and unfailing redemptive plan from Adam to Jesus. Genealogies are very important to God and to the Jews. And so, For him to not have genealogy means that, well, he must not be very significant. We don't know who his father was or who his mother was. We don't know where he was born or when he died. It's kind of like like saying, this guy was sort of just a nobody, I guess. And the writer of Hebrews, though, is now going to use that to draw a huge conclusion. He's not a nobody. He's a somebody. God had a plan with this man who appeared in Genesis chapter 14 and was referenced in a prophetic psalm in 110. This Melchizedek, he says, resembles the Son of God in that he continues as a priest forever. Now, verse 3 has made many people very curious about the real nature of Melchizedek. Is he just merely a historical man who was really just a Canaanite king and priest and for some reason went out one day and met with Abraham, shared some bread and wine with him, gave him a blessing, left with a gift, and then went back to wherever he came from? Or is there something more to the nature of this obscure king and priest? People have tried to draw conclusions from the information that we have in the Bible, which is not very much at all. Some have said that Melchizedek was an angel, and I think that's wrong because angels can't serve as priests of God, and we know that Jesus was our high priest, and he's not an angel. Some have said that he was Noah's son, Shem, but that can't be the case because Shem has his genealogy recorded in the book of Genesis. 
All kinds of ideas have come to the surface as to who this man really was and is, but there's two main ideas about this kingly priest that rises above them all. Melchizedek was either a, just a man who happened to be both a king and a priest, who had an interesting but you know, rather important interaction with Abraham, but that's all. He's just a man in history who came and went one day, and there's not much else to say about him. Or Melchizedek is more than a man. Perhaps he is a Christophany. Like a what? Christophany. There's a view, and and look, I I take this to be a viable view, that Melchizedek is what we might call a theophany or a Christophany, which is just a fancy theological term for a momentary appearance of God the Son in time and space before his bodily incarnation. This is one view. That Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And that's a viable view because there are places in the Bible where we most certainly see that happening. Just a few pages later in Genesis chapter 18, you see a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus to Abraham. But is this situation in Genesis 14 one of them? Perhaps. And just so that we're all on the same page, I want to remind you, because it is a foundational, core understanding of your Christian faith of what the incarnation is. What do I mean about pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus? Well, the incarnation of Jesus is when Jesus came in human flesh in our human history, born of a virgin, Jesus added humanity to his deity. And we know that before Jesus was alive on this earth in the form of a man, he has always existed in eternity past, and he will always exist in eternity future. Why? Because he's God. So just go read the opening verses of Hebrews chapter 1. So there's the possibility that Melchizedek was just a man, or there's the possibility that he is more than just a man, that he was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, our great high priest. So what do I believe? Depends on when you ask. For me, there was a time early in my discipleship as I was reading through the Bible in my early 20s. I had this voracious appetite for the word of God. I was convinced that Melchizedek was a Christophany. And I thought Christophany was a cool word. (laughs) Now, I'm not totally convinced of that view at this time, but I know with certainty that Melchizedek, at the very least, is a type of Christ is another theological idea of pictures of Christ that are seen all throughout the Old Testament. So at the very least, he resembles Jesus Christ in many ways, uh, in that he is a type of Christ, and at the most, he was Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate appearance about 2,000 years before Jesus was born. But let's just look at what the biblical text says in verse 3. It says, he is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, 
he continues a priest forever. Now here's a very important thing that we must see in verse 3. We don't want to make the mistake, as some have made, that Jesus, the Son of God, resembles Melchizedek. No, that's not what it says. It says Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. And as students of the Bible, you need to realize that the order of words in the Bible really do matter. For instance, why is Melchizedek king of righteousness and king of peace in that order? Because I believe we need to have Jesus become our king of righteousness before we can have him be our king of peace. See, righteousness and grace is always mentioned before peace in the Bible in that order because you cannot have the righteousness of God. You cannot have the grace or you can't have the peace of God, I should say, without having first received the righteousness of God and the grace of God. Make sense? And so Jesus comes before Melchizedek. Jesus comes before everything. Melchizedek resembles the Son of God, but Jesus is in a whole other category, a whole other league. So how far do you take that idea of resemblance? Well, I think that you can be spiritually enough, spiritually mature enough to decide for yourself. Was he just a man? Was he a theophany? You can decide that. And I trust that you will be mature enough to not get stuck on trying to figure out the identity of Melchizedek and miss the main point of what the writer of Hebrews is trying to make. Listen, we don't want to know who Melchizedek is. We want to know who Jesus is, right? So, Forget about Melchizedek for a moment. Who's Jesus? Jesus is, like Melchizedek, our king of righteousness and peace. Jesus, like Melchizedek, is one who has no beginning of days nor end of life. Jesus is the self-existent second person of the Trinity. Jesus is God who came in the flesh. He lived a perfect life. He died a perfect death. And he rose from the dead, never to die again, and therefore he lives as a priest forever, and so will those who believe in him and put their trust in him. That's Jesus. Now look, there's, there's still more about Melchizedek in the next seven verses, and there's going to be a part two next week because there's just too much to cover right now. So... How is Jesus our high priest after the order of Melchizedek? You guys have been paying wonderful attention so far. You guys want to keep going? All right. I like when you can hear, you know, a pin drop in the room or like a cell phone drop in the room, you know, it just can tell you guys are sharp to hearing God's word. So draw your attention back to the text in verse four, where it says, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. So clearly the writer recognizes the greatness of Melchizedek. And he wants us to recognize his greatness too. And he's going to show how Abraham, who himself was a man of greatness, 
In fact, the Jews couldn't think of anyone greater than Father Abraham, the great patriarch of the Jewish people. You know, <laughs> without Abraham, there was no Jew. Yet Abraham, who was a great man in himself, saw Melchizedek as a greater man. So great that he gave him a tenth of the spoils, and that's a lot to give one person. So in verse 5, it says, In those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. Now, in speaking here of giving a tithe, the Jewish person would have automatically had their minds drawn to the tithe that was paid by all the tribes of Israel to the tribe of Levi. And the tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe that descended from Aaron, Moses' brother. Aaron was a priest of God, and his lineage went down through the line of Moses, uh, one um, one of the 12 sons of Israel, and, and the Levites carried out the responsibility, right, of being priests. And the Levite priests received 10% of the nation's income off the top. That was so that they could serve God and they could serve his people in spiritual things. And look, this is why genealogy matters so much in the Bible. You had to prove that you were a descendant of Levi to serve in the Aaronic priesthood or the Levitical priesthood. You know, you had to have Levi's genes in order to be a priest. I was just seeing if you guys are paying attention. Didn't, right? You had to have Levi's genes. You had to have his genetic makeup, not the denim. And... and just so you know where we're going next week, what tribe of Israel was Jesus from? What was his genetic makeup? Judah, right? Judah was the tribe of kings. That's how Jesus can be a king, from the descendant of David. But if Jesus was from Judah, then that means he wasn't from the tribe of Levi. And so Jesus had to be of another priesthood in order to be a priest. That's just an appetizer for next week. So Levi's, the Levites received tithes from their brothers to serve as priests, but Melchizedek also received a tithe from Abraham, the forefather of the Jews, to serve as a priest. So verse 6 says, but this man, speaking of Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, speaking of Levi, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Oh man, this, this is building on something here. He's making a case for Jesus, our great high priest, being far more superior. And he has no problem saying it. Jesus is of a better priesthood. The priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood of Levi. And let me tell you, this would have caused some Jews to tear their clothes and to cover themselves with ashes. He's making a bold statement here. The writer is about to prove his case that Jesus is of a greater priesthood. How? 
in that Abraham paid a tithe, a priestly offering to Melchizedek. And that offering predates and presupposes any tithe that was later offered to the Levites. And so verse 7, it keeps building, and this is picking up some steam, where he just comes down and he says, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. He just said it. He just said it. You're like, well, what did he say? He just said Abraham was inferior to Melchizedek because Melchizedek blessed Abraham. We all know that a greater person is the one who blesses a lesser person, and that's how things work. And so if Melchizedek blessed Abraham, the writer of Hebrews is making a powerful and pointed statement. He's saying by the actions of Abraham in Genesis chapter 14, that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, then the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood of Levi. And to the Jewish mindset, that was very challenging. But it's true. And the writer shows that it's true by saying this in verse 8. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it testifies that he lives. He's saying here that the Levites received tithes as priests, but you know, every time a priest died, because they were mortal men, they had to be replaced. And every time they were replaced, they had to receive more tithes. More tithes had to be given. But in the case of Melchizedek, he has no beginning of days nor end of days. There's no record of genealogy on this guy. So for all we know, he still lives. And his priesthood remains forever. And you know what? Why don't we take it a little step further and say this in verse 9 and 10. One might even say... That Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. I hope you can understand what that's saying without me needing to explain it much. Let's just say that before Levi was a twinkle in his father's eye, Abraham was paying a tithe to Melchizedek. So in a sense, Levi, who was still in his body, paid a tithe to a greater priest that existed before him, and now Melchizedek remains an even greater priest after him. Are you picking up on what the writer of Hebrews is putting down? I hope so. And there is still more, but you're going to have to wait till next Sunday to get part two. As I conclude today, we want to look at two things. We want to consider what does this tell us about Jesus? And what does this tell us about you and me? First, what does this tell us about Jesus? Well, number one, it tells us that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, he is a priest forever. His priesthood has no end. And then secondly, Jesus' priesthood of the new covenant is far more superior than the priesthood of the old covenant. And this goes right in line with what we've been learning all throughout this book. Then why should one turn from a greater to a lesser? For those Jews who were tempted to go back to the Levitical law 
and ceremonies and sacrifices? Why would you go to something lesser when you have something so much greater in Jesus? And if this is true of Jesus, then what does it tell us about those who are in Christ? Well, to be a priest in the Old Covenant, you needed to have Levi's jeans, right? But to be a priest in the New Covenant, what do you need to do? You need to believe upon the greatness of Jesus. To accept him and receive him as your king and as your high priest. And then in doing so, you receive by grace through faith his inheritance. You belong to him. You are a part of him. You're united to him in all things. And therefore, we can say this about ourselves who are in Christ, as it says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. Jesus has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. Or what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, this is talking about you if you know the Lord, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous lights. Pretty cool stuff, huh? Awesome. Well, let's pray. We'll invite the worship team up. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time. We thank you that you stand over us today as our King and priest, we thank you that by your righteousness, we have received peace with God. And Lord, as we enter into a time of communion, Lord, we just thank you that you serve over an eternal kingdom with an eternal priesthood, and you stand over us today, blessing us, blessing us with the provisions that you bring to us even in the bread and the wine, similar to how Melchizedek gave that provision to Abraham. Let us see this and understand this in light of who you are and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.